All right. Um, I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes and bring them to your community group this week. We're going to be talking about, we're going to, we're going to be landing today in Psalm 42. Let me ask you a question. You ever been discouraged? Ever been depressed? Ever experienced a low? Anybody? All right. It's kind of quiet, kind of quiet. No, no one's really helping me out here, right? I guess your, your life is just one you know, um, high, high, right? Um, we, we've all experienced that. No one is immune from the dark clouds that seem to sweep and hover over our lives. You know, today in, in our culture, people talk about mental illness. It's actually something that's discussed more today than it was in, in, in the past, which is a good thing. Mental illness is a real thing. Uh, mental illness, depression, battling discouragement, there's some encouraging things about, about mental illness. Number one, mental illness isn't a sin. Just by the way, it's not a sin, right? If you have a toothache, what do you do? You tough it out or you go to the dentist? Well, if you're me, I'm going to the dentist, right? If you have liver failure, kidney disease, or heart problems, what do you do? You go to the doctor, right? You, you, if, if your mind is, 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 is broken, right, what do you do? You seek help. The, the, the heart is, is just a, another organ in your body. The truth is we're, we're all broken because of the fall. And if you're battling mental illness or discouragement or, or depression, I just want to tell you this morning, you're not alone. You're not alone. Sometimes people feel alone. They feel isolated. They feel like they're, they're on their own island. And no one understands. And, and no one's going through what I'm going through. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Because other believers are facing the same exact things in their lives. We face different things. Mental illness doesn't define you. It's not your identity, right? Your, your identity and your significance is ultimately found in Christ. You, your identity, who you are, your worth, your value is found in Christ. If you're battling discouragement, I want to encourage you to do what the psalmist did. I want to encourage you to place your hope in God. Maybe you want to give up. There's a lot of people when they, they face tough times and dark seasons, they just want to give up. They want to give up on life. Don't give up. Look up. Get your eyes focused on Christ because your hope is found in a person, which is Christ. Our hope is based on his character and his promises, which is... A, our hope is a confidence that everything will come to pass because God said it would. You know, there's a lot of things that you can lose in life. You can lose friendships. You can lose money. You can lose your marriage. I mean, heck, you can even lose your mind. But here's one thing that you cannot lose. You cannot lose hope in God. Amen? You can't lose your hope in God because that's not based on you. It's, it's based on who God is. You know, there are so many things that cause people to be discouraged. Maybe your temperament, maybe you're wired differently, maybe, you know, a different personality. Some people are more prone to depression and discouragement. Sometimes um, depression or discouragement comes into your life because you've been toying with maybe some sin. You've been playing with a, a rattlesnake called sin, and, and, it, and it's... Um, Maybe it's, there's guilt. Maybe there's unconfessed sin in your life. You haven't done some spiritual heart surgery examination of your life and confessing it to God. 
I think depression can come because there's disappointments in life. You know, we, we've, all, we've all experienced those moments where, you know, life didn't turn out the way we thought it would. Anyone ever been there? Maybe you thought life was going to turn out this way, and it turned out this way, and so dreams are shattered. Maybe, maybe the disappointments of life have to do with relationships being severed. Maybe a love that you thought was going to be vibrant and permanent, now it's lost and it's gone. Maybe personal failures, maybe failure in career or failure in your goals or failure in missed opportunities. I mean, how many missed opportunities have we missed in life? God's like open doors. I was just thinking about that the other day. I, I had two amazing doors open to me. You know, one in seminary and, and one when I came to San Diego, and I didn't really pursue those doors. That's a disappointment in life. I, I have to live with that. We, 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 all, we all experience those, those disappointments and those failures in life. You know, I love what Irma Bombeck, she said it so well, if life is just a bowl of cherries, why am I always in the pits? That's true, right? Life is not always a bowl of cherries, you know, we're going to get depressed, we're going to feel down in the dumps, and, but I want us to see the condition and, and the principles of Psalm 42. The condition of the psalmist in 42 and 43 is, is, um, is not uncommon, is not uncommon. Let me, let me say this before we kind of launch into some of that. Believers are not exempt from discouragement and depression. Um, I love what Erwin Lutzer said. He knew A.W. Tozer personally, and he said of this, this great theologian, this man who knew God so intimately, had days he was so discouraged he felt he could not continue as a minister. A man who instructed thousands in the deep things of God often felt he was a miserable failure. Then there are times where I feel the exact same way. William Carey, who was the father of the, the modern missionary movement, was said to have experienced sheer black depression. You know, the psalm is intensely personal. The writer of the psalm fluctuates between faith and despair as he wrestles with God. One moment, the psalmist is hoping in God. The next moment, he's struggling and in total despair. Anyone ever been there? One moment, faith is strong. The next moment, it's like spiritual meltdown. You know, one moment you're strong, you know, I mean, faith fixed on God, and then the next moment you're, you're crumbling. You're, you're experiencing despair, and, and, and um, he's experiencing these highs and lows, this, this pendulum, this seesaw. He's going back and forth, and so the question for us is, who is the author? Well, if you read the superscription above the psalm, if you have your Bibles open, it says the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a subgroup of the priests who would lead the people in worship. He's exiled in the far north of Palestine, living among Gentiles. So non-Jews, today would be non-Christians. So Psalm 42 and 43 were probably originally packaged one as one psalm. The refrain is repeated in chapter 42, verse 5, and in verse 11, 
And then if you look at chapter 43, it's mentioned again in verse 5. So there's this reoccurring theme that the psalmist is hitting. I want you to understand two things about the psalms. Number one, psalms were poems that were meant to be sung. What, what does music do, right? Music affects your emotions. It, it, it changes your heart. That's what music does. It affects the way we feel. Psalms, second, are also for instruction. It affects the way you think. So the book of Psalms was the songbook for the Jewish people. I mean, you can you imagine, you know, David wrote Psalm 51, very honest, very real about his sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, right? Adultery, murder, and the church is singing about that. Pretty wild, huh? Would anybody write down their, their deep, darkest sins and then have the church sing about it, right? But you know what it does? It, it causes you to think differently. It causes you to feel differently. That's, that's the purpose of the Psalms. It affects your emotions. It affects your thinking. I want us to think and feel deeply with God this morning. I want us to handle depression and discouragement. You may say mental illness the way this psalmist does. I want us to desire God the way this psalmist does. What's the condition of the psalmist? Well, externally, his circumstances are oppressing and bleak. If you look at verse 3 and verse 10, I mean, you, you see their circumstances. It's very clear. Externally, it just life is hopeless. He is being taunted for his faith by unbelievers. It appears that he's been abandoned. They're saying, where is your God? So externally, he's having a hard time. Internally, his emotional condition is one of depression. That's why he's saying in verse 5 and verse 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Right? Why are you in turmoil within me? Right? Hope in God. Verse 3, he's not eating. It says that his tears have been his food all day long. You ever been so depressed that you feel you're on the brink of tears? Verse 7, he feels like he's drowning. He's literally drowning, but he's fighting for hope. In verse 5, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. He's not praising God, but he wants to. There's this battle that's raging between his head and his heart. Charles Allen said, when you say a situation is hopeless, you're slamming the door in the face of God. When you're saying that my situation is, is hopeless, you're not giving God room to work in your life. And I, I cannot tell you how many times I've been discouraged and how God became my hope and my anchor in times of depression. But you're a pastor, yes, so. Charles Spurgeon often referred to as the prince of uh, preachers was so plagued by discouragement and depression that he resigned 32 times in 39 years. 32 times in 39 years. This is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. One of the greatest pastors, evangelists to have ever lived, 32 times in 39 years. Today I resign as your pastor at Summer Point Church. No, I'm joking. Um, when we get discouraged, here's what we need to do. We need to live and linger in this psalm. When you get discouraged, 
When you feel like the future is not bright, it's bleak, feed upon these words. Let it swallow you up because you'll, you're going to experience some dark days. So how are we going to respond and overcome depression when it hits our lives? Well, here's point number one. Pursue an intimate relationship with God. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation. That's where it all begins. If, if that's off kilter, everything else is off kilter. Psalm 42, 1 and 2, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, my, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He longs for God the way a deer longs for water in a time of drought. He desires to be in God's presence. That's, his, that's the aim of his heart. That's the passion of his life. He says, when shall I come and appear before God? You, you sense the urgency in this man's soul. He wants to enjoy intimate communion with God. He says, my soul pants for you, O God. Literally, my, my soul, my very being, my, my very nature wants you, God. And you see the intensity of his, of his longing. It intensifies. He says, first he, he referenced, he says, God. And then he says, living God. And then he says, when will I appear before God? Literally, when will I appear before the face of God? Here's what's amazing to me. In the midst of what he's going through, he's not pleading for relief. See, as as believers, when we're experiencing struggles and disappointments and failures and depression, discouragement, what what do we do? We We plead for relief. We plead for relief. He's not doing that. He's pleading for intimacy with God. That's what he's doing. He's he's pleading for a a closer walk with God. He's caught up in this love affair with with God. Nothing's going to get you through discouragement and depression better than hungering after God and seeking his face. The psalmist wants to be near God. He wants to know God intimately. C.S. Lewis describes the psalmist craving as an appetite for God. This guy has an appetite for God. He hungers for God. He's thirsty for God. Do we have an appetite for God? Do we have an appetite for the things of God? Do we have an appetite for the work of God? Do we have an appetite for God in our lives? David tells us in Psalm 63, verse 1, Oh God, you are my God. You are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. West of the Dead Sea in the Judean wilderness, there's a beautiful oasis. In the midst of the Judean wilderness, there's this oasis called En Gedi. It's a beautiful oasis with waterfalls. I mean beautiful, flowing, luscious waterfalls and greenery around the waterfalls. I mean literally in, in the midst of a hot desert, there's this, these beautiful waterfalls. And when I went to Israel several years ago, and you have to make the track through the Judean wilderness, and, and you get to this point where there's this beautiful oasis, I grabbed a few rocks as a reminder that God needs to be my Engedi. Is God your Engedi? Is He your oasis? Is He your refreshment? Is He your joy? 
Is he your peace? Is he your refuge? Is he your fortress? You know, what's so significant about water? Water represents life. You know what David was saying? David was saying, my soul thirsts for you. My life is, is barren and, and, and my source of life is you. God, you are my life. You are my refreshment. Is God our Engedi? Do we yearn and thirst for God? Do we hunger for God or do we hunger for something else? You know, it's so easy as believers to get caught up in the rat race and trying to keep up with the Joneses and, and trying to keep up with uh, the latest fads and the technology and, and, you know, remodel this and remodel that and buy this and buy new. And it's, it, we can get caught up in, in chasing materialism. The Apostle John calls it the pride of life. It's the sin of the pride of life. It's what you see with the eye, what you want. What you think will ultimately bring you ultimate satisfaction. We're all guilty of it. The accumulation of, of stuff, I, I, I like to call it the disease of stuffitis. A lot of people have the disease of stuffitis. That's just, they just long, they yearn for, for stuff. A lot of people, they yearn for success in their career. And they, they'll trample people to get to climb the ladder of success. Our yearning, our hunger should be fixed on Christ. We need to wean ourselves off of materialism and the success of careers and get our eyes focused on Christ and hunger for Him. What is the cause of this man's depression? Look at Psalm 42, 3 and 4. He says, my tears have been my food all day and night. So he's not eating. He says, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So they're mocking him. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. First, he's being taunted and being ridiculed by unbelievers all day long. Like, they know he's a believer. That's going to happen in your life. Or maybe it's not going to happen in your life because people don't know that you're a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, you're going to face persecution. You're going you're to have to suffer for Christ. That's a reality. As, as believers, we need to be aware of that. We're, we're suffering for Christ. We're suffering for the gospel. So he's being taunted. He's being ridiculed by unbelievers. They're making fun of him like he's been abandoned. They're like, hey, where is your God? Second, he's exiled from his homeland. He can't worship God in the temple. Verse 4 tells us that. And he remembers the worship services. He he remembers worshiping God in the temple, and he remembers better days, memories of, of, of going to God's house and being in God's presence. Some Christians, when it comes to corporate worship, they have a very shallow view of worship. You know, corporate worship is something that they're just going to fit in whenever they can, right? Sometimes the ball field gets more of a priority than God's house. And let me just say this real quick. This is not God's house. This is God's house. The Holy Spirit indwells you, lives within you. You're the temple of God. This is just brick and mortar. This is just, we come, we gather. Now, when we come and we gather, God is in the midst. 
He manifests his presence. We're, we're, we're two or three. There I am in the midst. God, his presence, he reveals. He's here. He's working. All of that. So I don't want to downplay this space or this area. You know, we are called to be the church. We're, we gather together. We're the ecclesia. We gather and then we disperse to impact the losses around us. But when it comes to corporate worship, corporate worship should be a priority. I mean, as a pastor, I look at all the trends. I, 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 I see all the research. It is amazing the, the decline in church attendance from one generation to the next. From boomers to Gen X to millennial, I think now it's Gen Y or Gen Z. Gen, I don't know. I can't keep track of all the Y, Z, Z, you know. I just know I'm Gen X, right? So you see the decline of church attendance. It's declining rapidly. If you're a Christ follower, corporate worship should be top priority. It's a time to gather. It's a time to worship. It's a time to celebrate the goodness of God, the the faithfulness of God in your life. It's a time to get your eyes off of the problems of weak and get your eyes fixed on Jesus. This is why we gather, to build one another up, to grow spiritually in our walk with God. Here's point number two. Jot this down. Fix your hope on God even when life seems hopeless. When, when the future seems bleak and you're battling depression, discouragement, what do you do? You fix your hope on God, even when life seems hopeless. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise in my salvation, my God, my, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mizar. He says this in verse 5 and verse 11. He's questioning himself. We've all done this before. You know what he's doing? He's preaching to his own soul. He's confronting himself not to be downcast, but to hope in God. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he makes a great deal of this point, stressing that that talking to ourselves rather than allowing circumstances to talk to us is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. He says, it is... It is a case of the mind speaking to the emotions rather than the emotions dictating to the mind. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. You know what I've noticed? Martin Lloyd-Jones is right. And I've experienced in my own life, our problems are due to listening instead of talking to ourselves. Reasoning with our emotions. We can be so defeatist at times, can't we? We beat ourselves down. Instead of speaking to ourselves, we listen we listen to fear rather than build ourselves up in faith. Instead of drawing near to God, we draw near to the devil. We allow the devil to have a foothold in our life. The enemy wants to defeat you. The enemy wants to make you feel like you're a loser, that you have past failures, that you don't amount to anything, that you're not worthy, that God doesn't care about you. You know, we've all heard that little one-liner. Next time Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Amen. You know, when Satan whispers in your ear these negative thoughts, 
that, that drown out the promises of God, I want you to speak to yourself. I want you to encourage yourself. I want you to speak Scripture to yourself. I want you to say no, no to the enemy. No, I'm not going to give in to that fear or those feelings. No, I'm made in the image of God. I have a purpose. I am worthy and valuable because I am in Christ. My identity is not in what I own, but who owns me. Because of Jesus' death for me, I am forgiven. I'm accepted. I'm loved by the God of the universe. I have the Holy Spirit of God, the guarantee of my inheritance living within me. I'm justified by faith alone in Christ alone. I'm a child of God. I have been adopted into God's eternal family. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What can separate me from the love of God? All my sins have been thrown into the depths of the oceans. We need to embrace the promises of God. The psalmist's hopes have been shattered. His faith has been mocked. His feelings were more than he could handle. But you know what he's doing? In the midst of dark days, he's hoping in God. He knew that God was still on the throne. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor imprisoned by Adolf Hitler for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, he wrote, God is not on the edge of my hurt. He's in the center of my pain. I love that. Christ is in the center of your pain. When you experience pain in, in this life, understand Christ experienced the same pain in his life. And to a much greater degree, he was betrayed by his own. I mean, he invested years in a band of 12 men. I mean, Judas sold him out for a bag of coins. Peter, the leader of the pack, denied him three times. All the other disciples were scattered, fulfilled prophecy. Jesus experienced loneliness. He experienced temptation. He suffered unjustly. When you experience pain in this life, Jesus understands. And he's, in the, he's at the center of your pain. And he understands what you're going through because he's been there himself. Here's point number three, trust in God's sovereign love. Trust in God's sovereign love. The psalmist goes on and he says in verse 7 and 8, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You know what he's doing? He's resting in God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, this, this means that nothing can thwart God's plans. When God ordains, when God decrees, it's going to come to pass. When God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. God is in control of the universe. He's in control of creation. He's in control of your lives. He's sovereign. He's big. He's glorious. He's awesome. He's resting in, the, in, 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 in this, um, this attribute of God that God is, is, is sovereign. He's in control. And he's resting in God's unwavering love for him. He knows that God's in control. He knows that, that, that God's unwavering love is, 
upon him. Notice what he says in verse 7. He says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's not attributing any of this to the enemy. He's saying, you know what, God? Your breakers, your waves, he doesn't understand what's going on. He feels like breakers and waves are, are hitting him down and causing him to drown. You know, I don't know about you, but isn't it awesome to live in San Diego where you can go to the beach anytime you want? Pretty awesome, right? You know, when we moved here, we had, you know, uh, four small kids. Well, Candace was pregnant with Luke. And uh, we spent many, many days going to the beach taking the kids to the beach, and, man, we love the beach. It's so much fun. It's so much fun to just get sandy and dirty and, you know what I mean? Anybody, anybody track it? It's like, I got to get out of here, man. I got to go take a shower, man. I got sand everywhere, right? But when the kids were little, we'd go to the beach, and we'd spend all day. And, and I remember so many times I would see my kids with boogie boards, and they, they'd run out there, and they would try to get out there, and then a wave would knock them down. And, and then they'd get back up, and they'd go out there, and a wave would knock them down. And, it reminds me of this passage. It reminds me of what the psalmist is going through. During the turmoil, right, he's not losing his grip on God. His faith isn't wavering. He's being knocked down by God's breakers and God's waves. But there's purpose in all of it. There will be some massive waves that will hit your life. The scriptures are, are chalked full of of the reality of the Christian walk, that you are going to face some dark seasons in life. Maybe because of your own sin, maybe because of just the, the, the world being fallen, cancer, illness. Maybe a failed marriage. Maybe bankruptcy. Maybe a close friendship that goes south. Maybe a child that you raised in church. You poured your life into them. You were faithful to raise them the right way, honoring the Lord. And now they've drifted from God. They're a total prodigal. They want nothing to do with Christianity. They want nothing to do with the church. You know, your life may be okay now. Your life may be great. Maybe you're not experiencing the, the breakers and the waves, but it's only a matter of time. This is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to build our life upon the rock. And the rock is God's Word. The rock is, is, is uh, the Word of God. Building our life upon the Scriptures. Building our life, forging our life, and, and anchoring our life to Christ. When you do that, when the breakers and the waves come cascading over your life, you can trust in God's sovereign love, that he's always in control, that he's always loving towards us. Point number four, worship while you wait. Worship while you wait. This is what he's doing. While he's waiting, he's in a season of waiting. Maybe you're in a season of waiting. I don't know what you're waiting for. Maybe you're waiting for God to answer a big prayer in your life. You know, maybe you're waiting for God to heal you. Maybe you're waiting for God to open up a door for you. He's worshiping while he's waiting. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I have no one else to turn to. I have no one else to turn to. God, you're the God of my life. You ever been there? 
where you're like, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know where to turn, but, but God, I'm clinging to you. He says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. You know, when Jesus is all you have, you will soon realize that he is all that you need. The psalmist is saying, God is my portion during the night, during the day. He's singing a song of praise to God in the middle of the night. New perspective, new attitude in, in the midst of discouragement. It's a matter of perspective. When bad things happen to us, we have to understand that there's purpose in pain, right? That, that God can, he can use, he brings victory out of defeat, right? Triumph out of tragedy. God is in the business of doing bigger things in our lives, but we have to have that perspective that God is good, that God is kind, God is faithful. He's doing something that I can't, I can't visibly see, but he's in control, and his love for me will never end. How do you respond? What's your perspective when life seems overwhelming, when life throws you a curveball? Do you hope in God? Do you praise God? Do you praise God in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the disappointment, the failure, the, the struggle? Or do you allow the pain to paralyze you? You know, God wants to draw us closer to him. And sometimes in seasons, we have to worship while we wait. We're worshiping God while we're waiting for God, while we're waiting God for, for answers. Here's point number five. You can be brutally honest with God in prayer. And this is the one thing that really stands out to me in Psalm 42. He's so honest with God. He says in verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He is brutally honest with God in prayer. He's so personal. He's saying, why have you forgotten me? Is it okay to be honest with God? Absolutely. God wants us to be real and, and raw with him. I mean, here's the deal. God already knows your thoughts. He already knows your feelings. And the example that this psalmist is giving us is so powerful. He's so raw. He's so real. He's saying, God, why have you forgotten me? You know, when it comes to, to doubts and unbelief, there's a, there's a big difference. Unbelief tears your faith down. Doubts can build up your faith. I think, I think doubts emerge from the ground of faith. When you doubt, when you have struggles, here's what it does. It should cause you to study, examine the Scriptures, to wrestle with God about those things that maybe you have doubts about. You know, the psalmist, he responds to his circumstances by asking why. Why do I feel this way and, and why have you deserted me? He questions God. Sometimes things happen in our lives that cause us to ask God why. Why have you allowed this suffering or that problem or, or this trial within my life? We will never, ever be able to answer the whys of life. But we can trust. We can trust God through everything knowing that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives. Romans 8, 28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The psalmist says why, because that's how he feels, not what he knows to be true. It's how he feels, but not what he knows to be true. So your feelings are not always true. 
Your feelings are not always true. He knows that God has not forgotten him. In verse 8, he says that God's loving kindness is still over him. In verse 9, he says that God is my rock, a, a strong foundation that, 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 that he can grab onto during shaky times. Regardless of how bad things get, God is still good. He's still good. And he's still on the throne. And he's still ruling. And he's still reigning. When you're discouraged and you're not sure what's happening in your life, when you can't see past the dark, lonely days in your life, believe the words of the psalmist. What does the psalmist say? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray.